I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 14th, 2018. Coming up, we'll hear about a new ultralight window-like material called an aerogel that used to be kind of foggy. CU scientists have just made it basically as transparent as glass. And then we'll talk with Aaron Furtok, an expert on the new standards for science for Colorado public schools. We begin with a look at some of the local news in science and recent news. Boulder has done a good job of preserving shortgrass prairies in the east part of the county, but restoring native plants is much more challenging, and it's not as simple as throwing out a bunch of seeds and letting them grow. A major monkey in the wrench is rodents. Hungry mice often gobble native seeds before they can germinate. Some species of plants evolved to deter rodents with defensive compounds, meaning chemicals that make them taste bad to mice. Unfortunately, native grasses lack these defenses, at least until now. Restoration ecologists at Missoula, Montana, have devised a spicy new way to keep rodents away from native plant seeds. Here's how they did it. Before planting native seeds, the researchers dusted them with capsaicin, That's the compound in chili peppers that most people describe as fiery hot. It turns out capsaicin also has the same effect on seed-loving rodents. They are 86% less likely to eat a native seed if it's been dusted in powdered chili pepper. Some chili powders not only deter mice, they prevent native seeds from germinating, and some coatings wear away before the seeds can germinate. So it took four years of trial and error to find the right chili coating. Now, the Montana researchers report they've found the right recipe. It's a powder made from the ghost pepper, which comes from India. The ghost pepper is considered one of the world's hottest chilies. And while it deters mice, it doesn't hurt the native seeds. Plus, this plant-based deterrent is helping scientists restore native grasslands without using man-made pesticides. The study was published recently in the journal Restoration Ecology. In more science news, here's a shout-out to Colorado State University's Samantha Conroy, who specializes in management science. Conroy is part of a team that studies the stress that can result from seemingly innocent work habits, such as checking your business email outside of business hours. Research by Conroy and other scientists on her team indicates that checking work emails after hours not only blurs the lines between work and home, it's stressful to employees and their families. Conroy's research is an incentive to not check business emails outside of business hours. That's it for the recent headline news in science. Coming up, we'll learn what's new in science standards for Colorado's public schools. But first, we'll hear about a new CU Boulder science discovery that involves a window-like substance called an aerogel. In honor of aerogels, here's some music titled Aerogel. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Imagine a liquid made from recycled plant material, a liquid that hardens into a transparent gel that's almost as light as air, almost as clear as glass, 
yet it can insulate against temperature changes. And that's not all. This gel is flexible enough you can wear it like a glove. All this might be a reality thanks to a project led by CU Boulder physics professor Ivan Smolyuk and his team. This team has improved upon a material known as an aerogel. Aerogel was originally invented in the 1930s. Unlike water-based gels such as shaving cream, the main ingredient of an aerogel is, well, air. And a common application has been to make it a solid sort of light glass, only most aerogels are translucent and kind of foggy. The CU Boulder team has made an aerogel that's much more clear, truly like glass, and they've made it from a rather environmentally friendly source. It's cellulose, created by microbes digesting the beer mash that gets left over after making beer. For more about this new transparent aerogel, here's a spokesperson for the CU Boulder's aerogel team. My name is Joshua De La Cruz, and I'm a graduate researcher here at the University of Colorado in Boulder. You and your team have just made something called an aerogel. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, an aerogel, well, first maybe it's perhaps easier to relate it to something that's already known and, and more common. A gel in general is some sort of material where there's some extended three-dimensional network. In a hydrogel, there is a continuous network um, surrounded by hydro, by water. So that's why we think of uh, toothpaste as being gelatinous. Shaving cream is a gel, and that's a hydrogel made of water and other stuff. Yes. The history of the aerogel is actually um, quite interesting. There are a few chemists uh, who were trying to see if they could evacuate the solvent from the aerogel without causing the pores to collapse. I sort of think of the polymeric portion as the girders, the iron girders, maybe when they're first constructing a building. And so it sort of is the backbone. But in your case, in an aerogel, instead of using water, like in shaving cream to make the gel, you use air. Yes. And so once all the water is gone and you just are left with air in this polymeric network, I think of the polymeric network as a a three-dimensional maze, a very torturous maze. The hot air molecules on one side of the window have to go through a very long, strenuous maze, and there's twists and turns everywhere, and it's extremely difficult for the heat that they carry to propagate. Well, that's right. Aerogels are known for being a lightweight way to insulate against temperature change from one side to the other. Yeah, absolutely. These aerogels have been made for some time now, but your group there at CU Boulder has figured out a way to make aerogels that are not just a kind of a smoky, filmy thing. They're more like a window. They can be transparent. That's quite an advance. That really is the novelty here. To remove some of the undesirable optical properties typically associated with aerogels. You've made them be much more crystal clear like glass, except not heavy like glass. Yeah, the real challenge here was removing this hazy, foggy appearance um, typical of aerogels. In doing so, when you make them more transparent, a whole new world of opportunities spin up. You know, typical aerogels were blue colored and they were foggy looking. And so nobody really wants a window that's tinted blue and foggy. But if your film is transparent, and indistinguishable to the average naked eye, then it really has a real marketplace advantage. So you've made an aerogel that can make a very lightweight and insulating window that's transparent. It looks like you did this by creating a lattice. Correct. And it's not just the lattice and the ordering that's particularly interesting. It's also the thinness or thickness of the lattice itself. Thicker lattices tend to scatter light more strongly, and so they giving you a resulting in a foggy-like appearance. But if you make those uh, lattice walls very thin, they no longer scatter visible light, and so 
the light that we see travels through essentially unimpeded. And I hear that one way that you accomplish this is by finding a material that's a plant-based material where I should lift a glass of beer to how you made this lightweight lattice. It's not straight from beer to wall, but the origin of our cellulose does come from beer. That is certainly true. And so cellulose is, I think, a pretty interesting chemical. It is nature's most abundant biopolymer. And so typically when you say polymer, people think of plastics. They think of polyethylene. They think of uh, polyethylene terephthalate. They think of, you know, Teflon and all these things that are nasty for the environment. When people say polymer, they think of synthetic polymers and plastics. But the truth is nature loves polymers and nature has engineered many structures with polymers. So, for example, the DNA molecule is actually a polymer, right? You learned in high school biology, it's A and C, T and G. And so these are the repeating units that link up together, like the links in a chain to form a very long molecule called DNA. And another polymer is the fiber in plants. Absolutely. But they're not the synthetic plastics that you might associate when you hear the word polymer. Well, you used a polymer that is a recyclable product. You use beer mash, the the byproduct for making beer. Not quite. The beer waste is ripe and rich in sugars and other nitrogen-containing sources, which is perfect fuel for certain strains of bacteria to eat this and then turn that sugar into cellulose. So they're actually polymerizing or linking up sugar molecules. Okay, so you used a basically a microbiome to turn the waste from beer mash into something that would create the right kind of lattice structure that's lightweight for aerogel so that you could make a lightweight window. We like to joke in the lab that the bacteria that make our cellulose are some of the best workers you could have because they work 24-7, they don't need any time off, they work for free. We essentially are harnessing certain strains of bacteria's native ability to turn waste products that we eat in our food into cellulose, something useful. This is such a cool technology that you've created. It has all of the exciting things that we're learning about today, microbes, recycling, windows, and beer. (laughs) Yeah, there's something in it for everybody. Some of the applications that you've mentioned are intriguing, possibly windows for airplanes to make them be more lightweight and more insulated, possibly even a greenhouse someday on Mars. Absolutely. Uh, You could imagine, especially in extraterrestrial applications, there is a real need to let light through so plants can still grow or so the astronauts can still see yet protect the astronauts from the harsh outside environment of space by keeping their heat in without letting the cold space kill them. You know, usually we think about windows as hard. Aerogels sound like they can be hard, but it also sounds like you could use them to make a clear, transparent, flexible glove or a clear, transparent, flexible spacesuit. That's what's very nice about our approach is we can tune things and just slightly change the additives or the way that we process. And so if you would like something stiff, that's achievable. But if you'd like something flexible that could survive a little bit of bending and twisting and warping, that is certainly achievable as well. When can I buy one of these outfits at Target or off of Amazon? When can I get one of these clear plastic new things to wear. It's always hard to predict the future, but I think um, it's feasible to see something on the store shelves in two years from now, possibly one to two. Joshua, you just said something I didn't expect because usually the answer to the question that I asked was 20 to 50 years. You said two years. 
That's not very long. No, it's not. We're very lucky that things have been progressing nice and steadily. We have a lot of polymer science experts and aerogel experts in our laboratory. So right now we're working on scaling up. And so we know all the techniques that we apply should work at a larger scale. But you would imagine, again, like, you know, just because you can make a dozen cookies at your house, that doesn't necessarily mean you could be the Keebler Elves and make 500 cookies tomorrow or thousands of thousands of cookies. There are some issues when you scale up where the machines that you need, you know, you need conveyor belts now. You need to hire people. You need lawyers to protect your intellectual property. And all these steps take time. And so despite the technology being robust, there still are a few logistical concerns to work out. Well, thank you for explaining. And we look forward to these being real products in two years. Of course. Joshua De La Cruz is part of a CU Boulder team that has developed a new transparent aerogel. I'm Shelley Schlender. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Up next, we'll talk about new science standards with Aaron Furtick. Stay tuned. The blinding heat of summer is almost over, and it's about time to think of the dazzling opportunities for public school children to learn more about science. In fact, there's a new plan for how they'll learn science in their classrooms. It's basically the first update of Colorado science education standards in well over a decade. Here to tell us more is Erin Furtek, professor of education. She's an expert on the new science standards, which are based on the Next Generation Science Standards, which is a national program. Furtuck has partnered with a local school district since 2014 to better understand how teachers support student learning in middle and high school classrooms, implementing these lessons. Furtuck also serves on a board of science education committee for the National Academies of Science. Erin, welcome to KGNU. Thank you. Well, tell me this. You have children who, who are in grade school and in preschool. Will these new standards even affect them? Yes, they will. They'll be affecting the learning of kids in public school across Colorado for many years to come. What would you say if people were to look at how people study science, like in books, memorizing periodic tables, or in Montessori school, which one is more like the new standards? Um, I would definitely say... Um, the kind of Montessori approach or ways of kind of building on kids' natural curiosity and looking at the questions that kids just spontaneously ask as they're engaging in the natural world is one of the foundational principles of the new science standards. I have to admit, this sounds kind of fun. It is fun. <laughs> but how does this tie in with actually learning science? Um, we, we've had so many, there's always been teachers who teach like you describe. Absolutely. But there's always been a pressure to say you have to learn the facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you say that learning through curiosity can match up with the 
skills learned by learning the facts. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, I think that's a classic dilemma in all of science education, which is how do we help kids learn the important ideas of science deeply while also helping them learn everything that we want them to know. And so the new science standards are focusing on fewer ideas that we call the disciplinary core ideas and going into those ideas more deeply so that we can connect those with kids' everyday ideas and experiences. We know that if kids go to school and just learn a lot of facts, they don't have good ways of connecting those with their everyday experiences. And so the kind of foundational ideas behind the new standards are that by encouraging kids to ask questions about the natural world and then connect those in school with the science that they learn, they're actually learning science in ways that'll be useful in their everyday lives. You know, Erin, this sounds a little bit like how people learned how to do things on the farm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where there were lots of informational things a person needed mm-hmm. to do, mm-hmm. but a lot of it was just solving problems. An issue we have today is we don't get to do that very often, is mm-hmm. actually take our hands, take our minds and say, well, how do we make this work and change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because you bring up that example and it makes me think of John Dewey, an education reformer back at the turn of the last century, who was actually saying, why can't we get kids doing things like um, spinning cotton and doing the kinds of things that people do on farms as ways for them to really experience and learn through their experience and have opportunities to ask questions and, and then start learning through those experiences. And so it's not like these ideas that are at the foundation of the new reforms are new. It's just that we're kind of trying to broaden them and bring these into the more classrooms and into the experiences of more kids' lives. And, you know, there was a study or actually a history of Bell Labs where it turned out that the Bell Labs often looked for kids who grew up on farms Hmm. because they knew how to tinker with things. And they looked for kids who also did well in school in the very heavy-duty academic sciences. Mm -hmm. So that brings up this question again. What about those heavy-duty things like memorizing the periodic table Mm -hmm. and being able to say what was it exactly that that guy, what was his name? Newton, you know, what exactly did he do? Mm-hmm. Will, will students still learn those kinds of things? Um, yes. I mean, all of these kind of big, like I said, the kind of big ideas of science are definitely in the new standards. And um, the kind of new emphasis that um, we're kind of bringing in is learning these big ideas through engaging in what we call scientific practices. And so kind of the habits of um, or the practices that scientists engage in as they do their daily work. And so um, analyzing data, asking scientific questions, engaging in argument, building models. And as you do that, you'll draw on resources like the periodic table, but you know, in in today's world, it's very easy to just access the periodic table at any point in time. But maybe what we might be focusing on is what does the periodic table mean? How did people build this? How do we use this as a tool to help us understand patterns and different phenomena rather than just something that's full of facts that we might memorize? How does this compare to how scientists are educated in Asia or in Europe? Mm -hmm. Well, this is definitely part of a wave of reforms that's definitely been going on internationally for a while. Um, If we look to Europe or other countries, there are um, 
similar emphases. They might go under different um, names like scientific inquiry or scientific competencies. But that emphasis is the same of engaging students in developing scientific explanations, using models, doing um, argument in classrooms where we really want them doing the things that scientists do as they're learning science. You know, is this too much of a generalization? What I have heard is that scientists in Asia in particular are known for their rigor of how they study and how they're disciplined in how they study, but they aren't always known for their creativity in solving new problems. Mm -hmm. Did I just say something incredibly prejudicial, or is this actually educationally an accurate a comparison of approaches? Well, I'm not an expert in Asian science education at all. Um, But what I can say is that the new standards um, movement in the U.S. is actually incredibly rigorous. And in my work with teachers, what we are discovering is that as teachers learn to teach in this new way, it actually helps them kind of reflect on their own science learning and deepen their own science understanding as they prepare to teach in this way. You're reminding me of something else, Aaron Furtek, and that's that there's these new rather open-ended science standards with the hope that this will help students really learn to be creative thinkers and intelligent scientists. But we also have this thing called standardized testing, mm-hmm. which generally has been content-based, mm-hmm. where you answer questions that are multiple choice, or you know you don't you don't get a lot of room to be creative as much as you have to answer questions. And that's how schools are judged. Mm-hmm. How will this new science standard tie in with those mm-hmm. standardized tests? Well, part of the kind of um, standards revamp involves a timeline. So the new standards were adopted this summer. And there's um, uh, after this kind of board approval process, um, school districts are going to have two years to review and revise their own local standards as needed. Um, and they're kind of on a timeline toward implementation for the 2020-2021 school year. And um, at the same time, the kind of statewide assessments are going to be reviewed for their alignment to the new standards and needed adjustments will be made accordingly. So if we're thinking about learning in a new way, uh, in the new standards, where we're kind of focusing more on science, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but also engineering practices, not just science, um, we're going to have to start thinking about assessing students the same way. And at the beginning, you were kind of mentioning this um, partnership work that I've been doing um, with Aurora Public Schools, my um, my colleague at CU Boulder, Derek Briggs, and I have been working um, with the school district, and we're supporting science teachers and learning how to design and use assessments that are aligned with these new standards, and also thinking about how the new standards create an opportunity to better track students from year to year as they learn about ideas that cut across multiple grade levels. Well, I don't yet quite picture how this all boils down <laughs> to a multiple choice test on a for kids, but you're confident that this could happen? Well, it doesn't, I mean, that's the thing that's so exciting about kind of new advances in assessment is that it doesn't have to be multiple choice anymore. And some of the assessments that are being developed along the new standards um, are online and they're involving students using and even some cases building models. And as we think about how we can assess Um, It's going along with how we're thinking about learning as doing something and engaging in a practice and not necessarily memorizing something. And maybe multiple choice assessments aren't going to be able to capture that completely. So the periodic table of the elements might be something that we all go to Wikipedia to look up. Perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) So it just depends. And and, um, all of this, will this change textbooks or will it change other things right away or will there be time for this to evolve into 
schools? Um, yeah, I mean, reform processes are always slow and take time. And so part of this kind of slow um, implementation timeline is because districts are going to have to, to look and think about what curriculum materials are we currently using, and maybe different textbooks will ultimately be used. But those decisions will all be happening at district and school levels. People are probably curious about this. What are some resources that they can go to mm-hmm. online for learning more? Yeah, there's a really wonderful website that the National Science Teachers Association has developed that I would really recommend people could visit. Um, it's www.nsta.org slash parents. And parents can oh, learn... Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm just... My, my science brain here mm-hmm. and my learning brain just mm-hmm. went... I didn't have a pencil to write that down. Mm -hmm. If I were to do a Google search to try Mm -hmm. to find this, what Mm -hmm. words would I use to Google that? I would just do NSTA parents. Okay, NSTA Mm -hmm. stands for National Science Science Teachers Teachers Association. National Science Teachers Association. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Parents, and that'll get you to something that talks about the science standards. It talks about kind of the new science standards, and there's a great short list there that's called For Busy Parents that talks about how you can talk to your kids about um, science at home, asking questions and modeling how you wonder about how things work and not feeling like you have to have all the answers, but talking to kids about, let's figure this out together. Oh, so instead of sitting down with a child and saying, let's memorize Newton right now, there might be some fun projects ahead. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. what are you doing with your kids at home in that regard? Um, Well, we were actually up in Estes Park uh, a week and a half ago going on a hike, and my son was complaining about how it was really hard to hike uphill. And then he said, why is it harder to walk uphill than it is to walk downhill? And I, I've always wondered that myself. And you know, this is a question about gravity. And um, we were um, also noticing how some kinds of plants grow in the shade and some kinds of plants grow in the sun. And these are all questions where we can say, I wonder why that is. And my daughter was saying, well, maybe there's more water here than there's water on the other side of the trail. And why is that? And there's just so many natural paths of inquiry that we can build from the questions that our kids ask, we don't have to jump in and give them the answers right away, especially because the questions they ask are so good, we'll never have all the answers that they need. The world is a wonderful and mysterious place. Absolutely. (laughs) And science can be too. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you again for joining us. Our guest has been Erin Furtek, who is a Tell me again your official title. Um, I'm a professor of science education and associate dean of faculty at the School of Education. Talking about the new standards for science that will be in Colorado. Thank Thank you. you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music includes the song Aerogel and also that famous song Blinded by Science. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.